Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Hassan. Today, as always, we have a very special guest, Jack Margolin. Jack is the program director at C4 ADS, a nonprofit organization that uses publicly available information and emerging technology to disrupt international crime and conflict. He has investigated corruption, arms trafficking, and nuclear proliferation from Russia to South Sudan. Thank you for joining us, Jack. Thank you so much, Ahmed. Great to be here. So, Jack, in your own words, can you tell a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and, and what do you do now? Absolutely. So, before I was a program director here, I was an analyst, and I came to C4ADS through basically my experiences in college and, and really the, the sort of changes that I wanted to affect in the world, things that I wanted to be a part of. While I was in college, I studied international relations. I was not really satisfied with a lot of the career opportunities that I saw in that field, really around their ability to create impact and a lot of the sort of conventional think tank structures that I saw. I didn't really see opportunities to use the kind of tools I was excited about, engage with the kinds of partners I was interested in. And while I was in college, there was also these sort of concurrent changes happening globally, right? So there is this sort of defeat of this tech solutionism idea that social media was going to create this wave of democracy. Yevgeny Morozov released Net Delusion, his book, which was really kind of instructive for me around 2012. Of course, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. And then open source intelligence and sort of the, the global exploitation of that uh, really came to the fore while I was still in college. And all of that informed my ways of thinking. And around, around the middle of my time in college, I discovered C4ADS from their report, the Odessa Network, that concerned Russian arms trafficking, particularly to Syria, using vessel tracking and mapping corporate networks. And that really connected a lot of, of the things I was interested in and answered a lot of questions for me around what was possible. So I interned with them after I graduated. I worked principally on corruption. In that case, alongside the, the Enough Project, the corruption in South Sudan. Subsequently, I worked within C4DS with the Nuclear Threat Initiative and an array of government partners studying proliferation risk, particularly in India and Pakistan and understanding their illicit nuclear procurement. And finally, I became the program director for our conflict-affected states program, which focuses on the ne nexus of illicit networks and armed violence. Throughout all that, the sort of thorough line has been that I've really focused on the use of publicly available information, which I can get to a little bit later, how we distinguish that from the sort of OSINT moniker, as well as using emerging technology tools to really try to use that type of data, that vast amount of public data at scale to map illicit networks, map their activity, and then work with our partners to try to disrupt that activity, reduce the harm that they do to, to communities around the world, the threats that they pose to uh, national security in the United States and elsewhere. And I've found that that's been really, really rewarding. And I've been really, really grateful to have the chance to use the tools that I've used here. And honestly, more than anything, to work with the partners that I've been able to work with, because we have a tremendous amount of flexibility as a nonprofit to do that. So working with media, other nonprofits, a U.S. government, really anybody who's in a position to affect change. The last thing I'd say there is while I was in college, I studied Russian. That ended up being tremendously useful to me particularly around being able to understand things like Russian data sets, of course, Russian language reporting. And I definitely would say I encourage anybody looking at this space to find a language that they're interested in that's relevant to the problem sets that they're invested in and care about. 
because um, that is a tremendous asset. So that's where I am now. Um, I'm overseeing a team of around five analysts. They're working on problem sets that range from Japan to Ukraine, and they're working with a range of different partners in order to basically try to uh, reduce certain types of illicit activity by disrupting the network behind it. You mentioned this already because this is, mm -hmm. this is a discussion I love and I hate OSINT, or at least the moniker, right? <laughs> and, and you clearly make a distinction because when I read it the first time, publicly available information, you specifically stay away from the word OSINT. Why is that? So this is one of those conversations and discussions that I often have with our partners that I think can seem semantic at first, but it's actually pretty important. We want to make sure that we're rigorously defining what our mission is and what we're trying to do, which is obviously first and foremost to defeat illicit networks. But a big part of that is to drive forward how people are thinking about understanding them and mapping them. So we need to be clear about the type of data that we're using and why we're using that data. OSINT, that term comes with a lot of baggage. Not to say that publicly available information, or we usually abbreviate it to PAI, doesn't come with baggage, but I think that it's generally a much broader sort of definition that is more applicable to the type of work that we're doing. So OSINT, specifically, depending on who you ask, can concern things that are available publicly and freely, right? So that can then eliminate things that might be commercially available, gray literature, different types of data feeds that are harder to access, that aren't necessarily available to the general public, or that aren't available freely or open source, but that are still valuable and aren't classified or access restricted. Publicly available information, PAI, that term is, is much broader and that encompasses the full range of effectively anything that is not access restricted. Anything that's legal for us to access is not subject to any kind of uh, classification and then can, in, it can include anything from commercially available data, what can be collected in terms of sort of secondary collection, scraping, derivation, et cetera. It really gives us a broader range of what we're focusing on. And then the last thing I would say that's, I think, important here, when people talk about OSINT or open source intelligence, I think it's sort of been divorced from its original meaning within the intelligence community. And if you think about the, the, the term itself, open source intelligence is describing intelligence. It's typically used to refer to anything from the underlying data to the actual finished intelligence product. But by virtue of including that word intelligence, it biases itself towards referencing actual intelligence products, whereas publicly available information can refer to the raw data um, more explicitly. And for that reason, we think that that's sort of a better sandbox for us to focus on. Yeah, you, you said it perfectly. I couldn't have said it better because I'm on the other side, right? So what we consider intelligence, as you said, is value added to, and I think a lot of people mistake collecting so OSINT without a T with yep. OSINT. I hope anybody that's into OSINT and any researcher that's hearing this, I'm not bashing you guys, but it is important to make that distinction because I get these questions from clients. I get these questions from people that want to join the industry, either government or private sector or NGOs. And I have to explain this so many times. So I hope we could come to like a standard of what these terms are right. And it's one of my pet peeves. So uh, sorry if I, if I keep hopping back on it, but it's a thing. What is the most enjoyable part of your job for you? 
I, I think that if you asked me this question a couple of years ago, my answer would probably be different. The analysis side of things is really rewarding. And we're really lucky as an organization that we've focused so much on developing data access, data holdings, and access to tech tools. So we get to use a lot of things that are commercially available software or things that we've created in-house, like our flight analysis platform, whatever. That's really exciting to use. And the analysis itself is really fun. I've really enjoyed it. Being able to answer tough questions has been something that I think first got me interested in C4ADS in this broader field and has really kept me around. But as I've spent more time here, I've been here now for around five years, I've really found most rewarding focusing more on the impact side and the relationship side. And I've found that really the, the utility of our analysis is being able to share it with people that can do something with it, right? Like we're a nonprofit. We could publish, but we can't take action against a network, right? We can't, we can't prosecute somebody. We can't sanction anybody. We can't interdict the shipment, but we can work with partners. We can't. So the relationships that I built with partners around the world, I think have really been the most rewarding part, specifically being able to provide them with the tools, the things that they need in order to do their jobs more effectively. And then on the other hand, the sorts of high context that they can provide and of course the actions that they take. So for example, like working in Ukraine, we've worked with nonprofit organizations and that's been a really, really rewarding experience because A, you're working with the people who are directly engaged with these problem sets that are directly affected by it. They can share with you their context and their needs in a way that other organizations that aren't as focused on and aren't as you know located in, the, in these regions or countries, they, they just simply can't deliver that level of context. And then you're able to basically help them fill in the pieces of the puzzle that they need support on in order to do their work most effectively. So in those cases, I think it's really just that sort of collaboration, the relationships we built there. I've, I've made a lot of really close friends with our partners over my time at C4ADS. And I think that that's been honestly the most rewarding, fulfilling part of the job. Very cool. I think also the most valuable, what do you think? The most yeah. valuable part is the connections yeah, that you make, right? At least that's what I, what I always think. You mentioned a couple of tools. I don't want to get too nerdy about this, but what do you guys use a lot? And you mentioned your in-house flight tracker, but yeah, could you give me a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that generally the, the work that we're doing, it relies on either sort of tradecraft and access. So if I want to work with a corporate registry, let's say it's somewhere like Lithuania, we pay for access to that. I can talk to people in the office and quickly find out which one of our analysts has the most experience with it. I've got this resource in terms of institutional memory of people that have worked with all these different data sets that can help guide me into how to use things, how to best exploit them, um, how to make sense of it. That's really valuable, obviously. And I think that's really one of the places that we started as an organization in terms of our value add um, that I'm really glad to see more organizations embracing. Where we've kind of grown to and where I've kind of developed my sophistication is in our ability to use other data at scale in terms of our collection, processing, and analysis of it. And for that, we use some tools that are provided by our philanthropic partners. We list those on our site, but they're folks like Windward for vessel analysis, folks like Palantir that we are supported by in terms of our network analysis and big data analysis through the platforms that they provide. And then there's the things that we've developed in-house where we've really seen a need for something. And we built our own solutions using our data team's expertise in developing those platforms and partnered with our analysts' subject matter expertise and their knowledge of the requirements that analysts have. The big ones that I would name there are our data environment, um, which is called Seamless Horizons. 
that's basically a uh, massive data lake that hosts all of our unstructured data single federated search. So we call it like basically Google for investigations. Some other organizations have similar platforms. OCCRP's Aleph is a really great example of one. Yeah. We grew ours out of the specific needs that our organization had and our partners had. So we'll often deploy that to partners. They can host their data in there. They can get access to certain buckets of our data. There's an OCC, there's an OCR functionality built into it. That's been really great for sort of bulk data sharing and discovery. Our flight analysis platform, I could talk about for a very long time. That's called Icarus Flights and I'll for keep it. this brief, but effectively <laughs> Icarus was born out of our sort of growing work on flights from around 2018 onwards. And we found that there were a lot of really great commercial providers for flight data, ADSB data, which is publicly available track data for, for aircraft. So like Flight Radar 24, Radar Box, they produce really, really great platforms. They've got great user interfaces. They've got incredible data, but they didn't satisfy our needs investigatively. They're really great for their customers, but for us to really dig into networks, we needed to be able to run more complicated queries of the types that we'd historically used on to understand, for example, illicit vessel activity in one word, which is, again, that's for tracking AIS, that's for understanding vessel movement. So what we did is we partnered with ADSB Exchange, which is a hobbyist network that has distributed thousands of ADSB receivers around the world through these small terrestrial receivers that receive information on aircraft traffic, store that in a database. And we built our own platform um, that pipes in that data and allows us to start layering analysis on top of it. So I can do things like, for example, build out a list of a fleet of aircraft and receive alerts anytime that they fly to certain places, take off, anything like that. So for example, I have an alert set anytime specific Ministry of Defense owned aircraft within Russia fly to like Belarus or Crimea or Syria, which gets into the other side of that querying, which is geographic querying. So I can set alerts or run analysis to identify where an aircraft is taken off from a specific location and subsequently flown to another location. And that's been really valuable for understanding illicit activity where we may not know the specific actors behind it. And we, we need a starting point based on sort of activities-based intelligence, understanding the, the, the flight activity of specific aircraft. All right. Very interesting. And is that tool only used in-house or do you give others or partners access to it? Yeah. So that's a great question. So as sort of the foundation of our approach and generally trying to get the entire community of people who are, have a, a complementary mission around defeating illicit networks, access to the tools that will make them more effective in that, in, in that mission. We give Icarus licenses to journalists and nonprofits that we see doing valuable work. We also offer commercial licenses for private companies that are looking to use this type of data for things like compliance measures that we see as being an important part of that sort of global coalition of, of, of folks, public, oh. private sector, nonprofits trying to defeat illicit networks. So it is, it's available on the, the site for Icarus. There's a, a link where people can basically fill out their information and ask to be given access. And we give them a license to use the software and we offer some training materials, et cetera. All right. I'm definitely going to ask you after this podcast yeah. about it, um, because it sounds very interesting. How do you balance the, the research value add that this tool gives you towards or on the other side, having maybe the U.S. government's flies that, that they don't want to be on there or out there. 
So that's where we're very lucky to be a nonprofit. <laughs> 501c3 nonprofit. Yeah. We have public reporting requirement. We're very clear with all of our partners that our core sort of mission is based around transparency, right? So mm-hmm. we don't really tend to take policy positions. There are specific things though, particularly around transparency, where it's pretty clear where where we lie. And that includes things like publicly available flight information, publicly available corporate registry information. So we're we're constantly advocating for that. We see it as being valuable to defeating illicit networks. We see it as crucial to US national security and allied government partner national security as well. The other sort of aspect of that with flight tracking is, of course, if military aircraft are flying, they're typically not ADSB, so they're not going to be as visible. That means that there are certain activities that we can't see. I can't, for example, look at, you know, foreign nation military aircraft that are conducting combat operations, but I can oftentimes look at their airlift. And the same thing goes for the United States. You can actually see U.S. surveillance flights. You can watch what U.S. contractors are doing in West Africa. But those actors have to have an awareness of the fact that if they're using ADSB, then they're going to be visible. And there's a lot of reasons they would use ADSB or need to, but at the same time, they need to keep those considerations in mind. Generally, we find that they do. They, they usually expect to be observed. And there's been, there's some great uh, work done by folks like Stefan Watkins, who you can find on Twitter. He's really been focused particularly on the Canadian military, but using ADSB to understand their activity which is something that I, I, I have to imagine that they uh, keep in mind. Well, let's hope they do or not. I don't know, depending on what, <laughs> what side of the fence you're on. But I found that very interesting because we are a private organization, even though we're very small. And you do see sometimes that you get into an area of, hey, maybe you shouldn't write that. Or, you know, maybe... You shouldn't use these sources, right? Even though it's publicly available and, and it's, a, it's a continuous discussion because if you work with government on one side uh, and they're happy with what you're doing, they cannot then turn around and say, well, this, that information that's out there, you cannot use that to write about us, right? And, and right. I, mean, I think in a democracy, a functioning democracy, that shouldn't be an issue either way. But that was one, another of my pet peeves because when you said that, I was like, hmm, I wonder. One other thing, and, I, and maybe this is, you don't have an answer on this, but maybe you do, but you mentioned outcomes. How do you guys mm-hmm. measure outcomes? Uh, it's a great <laughs> question. It's one that we spend a lot of time thinking about. And then particularly after I became a program director, I found that I've spent a lot more time thinking about that. So we can measure outcomes in terms of the types of actions that we support. And then of course, in terms of the actual effect that that has on the world. And what I mean by that is, the most direct and sort of straightforward way we can measure actions is to see, okay, these, this is the number of sanctions designations we've supported. This is the number of interdictions we've supported. And those numbers are things that we track regularly in coordination with our partners. Similarly, you know, if we're working with a nonprofit on an advocacy campaign, if that supports something like a prosecution or if that supports cancellation of a contract, anything like that, we can understand that we have helped to create that impact in the world. And that's meaningful. But we keep in mind what the mission is, right? Which is around defeating illicit networks, around making the world a safer place. And that sort of outcome level, that measure of effectiveness is much harder for us to to observe. However, because we're working with publicly available information and we're doing that at a scale where we're trying to look at the entire ecosystem, we can see changes over time. So we can see not only, okay, we supported these law enforcement actions, 
But then we can subsequently see, okay, how did the system adapt? Do we see things like a reduction in violence? Do we see things like, you know, for example, if we're looking at sanctions evasion networks, based on the analysis that we provided that supported these actions, how have these networks adapted? How has our analysis supported actions that have made the environment less permissible for illicit networks? And we find that we spend a lot of time doing that in assessing project success, but also just in terms of ongoing projects. I mean, I would say that that is one of the things that keeps us focused on core problem sets that we've worked on for years, like North Korean sanctions evasion. We've supported an enormous range of impacts in that space. And as a consequence of that, we've seen those networks evolve and become more sophisticated. So we've had to evolve and become more sophisticated to keep pace with them. I, I think that the important thing there is you get to a stage where you've really sort of developed methodologies, workflows, and expertise that reliably allow your partners to have actionable insight. And then from there, it's a matter of us determining how we can best sort of donate that capability and upskill our partners sustainably so that then we can move on to focus on other things and do that same kind of thing elsewhere. But that's generally how we think about it, right? Is yeah. what we what concretely we've supported and then how has that actually changed things on the ground? Yeah, no, it's really good because I think it's a very difficult question. It's one that we encounter a lot working with nonprofit partners, which we do a lot. And earlier this year, we did uh, a project whereby the organization asked us with publicly available information, is it possible to measure outputs, impacts, and outcomes, mm. right? Which are three different levels. And, and we made a model for them and they were really happy with it. But I think it was still very difficult because if you're doing humanitarian work, it's so difficult to say what the outcome is because there's a different outcome for a donor than an outcome for the person that you're trying to, or the community you're trying to affect. And so that I, I found your answer very good because I don't think a lot of organizations think that deeply about it. I saw one of your reports, a Pegasus Inc., I think it was Pakistani. Uh, and Indian, ah. yeah. Yeah, that was the product of some work that we did over the course of around two years, which, yeah. I like that you referred to that by the entities involved because I get to go back in the sort of mental yeah. library and <laughs> stuff I've investigated in the past. So that was, and the reason that I'm like thinking of initially like Pegasus, the spyware, as opposed to Pegasus, this thing is just because there were so many companies that we looked at within uh, the sort of larger scope of this effort. So. That was born out of our effort to basically map illicit nuclear procurement in India and Pakistan. We were really trying to pioneer methodologies that let us do that at scale. That was a really interesting project because we were starting from this position of applying PAI and emerging technology to a problem set that I actually think that community, the counterproliferation, nonproliferation community, has been really, really proactive and the mm -hmm. use of publicly available information. Like they, they have been extremely forward thinking on it. If you look at the work by folks like CNS, they have done really, really groundbreaking work. We wanted to see like basically where we could add uh, our value through thinking about these things at scale, thinking about risk-based models and really seizing on something I've referred to before here, which is like the, the volume and velocity and variety of publicly available information. Mm -hmm. So. How can we keep pace with the rapidly rapid rate of refresh of publicly available information and then use that to provide early warning and take the sort of risk-based approach where 
we don't necessarily need the smoking gun, but we can point to patterns in a way that's rigorous that then can give our partners uh, the leads that they need in order to investigate more deeply. In the case of Pakistan in particular, what we found was that basically Pakistan's illicit procurement of we'll use technology, whether it's a missile technology or nuclear applicable technology, they are very agile in terms of their procurement operations and they're creative. And this is an interesting sort of system of illicit networks because their tradecraft isn't particularly sophisticated, but their agility is pretty exceptional. And that was a really great thing for us to study for that reason, because it was observable. We could identify the networks behind it, and then we could start developing models that would help us keep pace with those networks. So what we did effectively was we looked at entities that were known to have procured uh, nuclear and missile technology illicitly, and we mapped their networks. And we found, unsurprisingly, that a lot of these sort of nondescript private companies in Pakistan actually had uh, relationships with the military and with other military enterprises. We also found that they were procuring through companies in places like Hong Kong and UAE. You dug further into those companies, you could find connections back to Pakistan. We found that the U.S. had been pretty aggressive in terms of its actions to restrict that trade through you know, doing things like adding companies to the entity list. So the Department of Commerce has been really engaged on that front. You can see that in terms of the, the types of warnings that they've issued, the, the types of listings that they've published through the Federal Register, et cetera. But what we saw was that we could generally help people to better understand this phenomenon by developing workflows that let you consistently identify new companies that were doing the same activity. Air report trick of the trade goes into that in a little bit more detail. That was uh, a report that I co-authored along with another one of our analysts, Arena Bukharin, who's now also our program director of our human security program. Where we basically were like, okay, starting from known entities, how can we develop a workflow that you can run and rerun using customs data and public procurement data to reliably say, okay, in any given span of time, these are the 10 companies, the 50 companies, 200 companies, however many that are most likely to be engaged in illicit nuclear or military related procurement. And then subsequently we, we made that more sophisticated. We basically found that it was possible to do this, you could do it reliably but that a lot of it was very manual. So we worked with our team of data scientists and engineers to start developing uh, machine learning leveraged approaches that would help us to do this with less sort of uh, burden on our analysts. Yeah. And that was an interesting experience because I think some of the things that we learned there were very instructive, particularly for me, as my, it was my first time engaging with machine learning solutions. And I think we found a lot of things that you'll hear from people that have spent a long time thinking about this, which of course that like machine learning AI, it's not a magic bullet. And that some of the places it's most useful for an analysis aren't necessarily in spitting out to you, your, your investigative findings. Yeah. Analysts need to have a role there, but it can be so effective at that data processing layer and data yeah. management layer, um, and can save you so much time by doing things like doing your entity resolution for you, cleaning up data finding patterns that you might not have otherwise seen for you, for your analysts to then make sense of with their high levels of context. Mm -hmm. So the, the analyst is still the one that is ultimately responsible for saying, okay, I've looked at this, I've evaluated what the model says. And based on my understanding, my interrogation of the model, this is what I believe is happening. Well, I'm asking all these questions. And I think I started this podcast 
because I find this interesting. I hope people listening find it interesting too. I'm guessing they do, but the people that I know, they do. The And then I, I, I don't know how much you want to go into the stuff, but the Russia-Sudan connection. We've done a lot around that. <laughs> what I read, what you were doing is very interesting. Please tell me more. Yeah. Um, so as someone with a sort of background in Russian language that worked on Russia and who then joined an organization where I was immediately assigned to do, start doing work on East Africa, I had to do a, a lot of sort of pivoting in my ways of thinking about illicit networks and do a lot of learning. It was a very humbling experience to start working on very different problems that sort of part of the world I'd never worked on before, but I was fortunate mm -hmm. to have access to our network and be able to talk to people that had worked on it for years and years or, you know, from the, the countries I, I was focusing on, really learn from them. And then around 2018, when we started to see this larger development of Russian activity and in places like Sudan and Central African Republic, later on Madagascar, Mozambique, now Mali, I really had an opportunity there to start applying what I'd learned about the, the networks in those countries and illicit networks in Russia and where they converged. So we've looked at specifically the Wagner Group, which for those of you that aren't familiar, is the Russian private military company that is active in each of those countries that I just named or has been active in each of the countries that I just named. And we've really looked at it from a standpoint that's focused on the commercial side of those networks. There's really, really great work that's been done on the military aspects of this, the political interference aspects. To understand their political interference activity, I really recommend people look at what Stanford Internet Observatory has done and what Graphica has published. Daily Beast and New America and a couple others have done some really great work. Like, there's a there's a litany of people I could recommend in terms of understanding those aspects. And we great have dynamics. And great dynamics, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've really focused on where I think our again, value add is, which is on the mm -hmm. aspects of these networks, which is their sort of logistical and financial backbones. And that has meant looking at the companies that they spin up in these countries, what their commercial activity is, their relationships with local actors. In the case of Sudan, our Sudan analyst could certainly describe this in much better detail than I could in regards to the, the sort of context within that country. But sort of highest level, what we've seen there is how this network has initially established itself within the country how it's adapted. After all, Wagner has had to survive building relationships with the regime of Omar al-Bashir, subsequently the revolution, and then subsequently the military coup that has reinstalled military control of the Chinese government. And throughout that process, the Wagner Group, as this sort of gray network, as this sort of semi-state network, mm -hmm. I think really been able to leverage the agility, the flexibility that, that, that those characteristics permit in order to build new relationships, to use commercial relationships in order to cement their influence in that country through actors like the Rapid Support Forces, which is a paramilitary organization that has achieved tremendous influence, that is the sort of successor to the Janjo yeah. in many ways that were active in Darfur previously. And we've demonstrated that through looking at their business relationships and being able to show specifically that, for example, Wagner Group network companies in Russia have sent shipments to companies in Sudan, specifically a company called Esnad Engineering, which there's no reason that anybody would be familiar with this company. It's got a very similar name to like a dozen other companies around the world. Of course it does. <laughs> but if you dig into its ownership, you find that it is directed, it's controlled by the immediate family members of the, the 
the, the, the guy who's basically in charge of the RSF, colloquially known as Hemeti. And that demonstrates to us this, this closer relationship through that commercial affiliation. We see the same thing when we look at what they were doing prior to the revolution, which was basically partnering with military enterprises in Sudan, um, the military industrial corporation, which has since changed its name, SMT, which was a, a sort of large military enterprise. Um, so in all these cases, the challenge with looking at the Wagner group specifically, and part of the reason I think it's such an interesting problem is because it requires pairing this knowledge of these networks in Russia, their sort of operational logic, their sort of organizational philosophy, and also really good data access and high context in the countries that they're active in. So I get asked a lot of questions about Wagner and Molly, and I try to, again, maintain, <laughs> I, I, I'm as humble as possible in saying, I am not an expert on Mali. My knowledge of Mali is very limited. I can tell you based on what I know of their other deployments and their network more broadly, what I think is likely, and I can tell you what I'm reading. But generally, I would say that I find that it's, it's I, I learn the most from that when I can say, share that information with someone that is, is an expert and really knows the, the context of that specific country. And based on pairing their context with my context and our organization's data access, that's when we really start to understand what's happening on the ground. I looked at the Wagner Group in Sudan for, for years, and it wasn't, uh, we weren't able to make this connection between some of these companies and military and paramilitary actors until I worked with our, our Sudan team, who really understood that corporate environment and really understood the players in Sudan. And they were able to say, all right, we dug into this with our data access and our networks and our knowledge, and we can tell you what this actually means. Yeah. No, I, and I think for everybody listening, if we as great dynamics on me and myself talk about Wagner, I always check if Jack has posted something on Twitter <laughs> on it. Thank you. That's very public. <laughs> because, and that, that's going to be my next question. So perfect segue into it. The bombing of the Wagner headquarters in Ukraine. I'm blanking on the name of the place, but I haven't told you this before, but I've been learning Russian for a while. Oh, awesome. Just to be able to engage with particularly Russia and Africa. And when I was going through it and I saw that, I was like, hey, this is, this is interesting. And of course, you had already something an hour before that on Twitter. So I was like, all right, it makes sense. But did, was Pirotkin there? Was he killed or is he still alive? Do we know that? Yeah. So, yeah, this was a, this was a really interesting one that I think is, it's a great case study in why it's interesting to look at the Wagner Group and broader Russian private military companies, I should say they're not the only one. And also why it's really challenging just because the information environment around them is super rich and super murky. These guys post a lot of information. They have enormous sort of affinity communities on places like Telegram. Um, and those communities will often post misleading or false information, either because they're trying to mislead audiences because they know people like me and you are, are looking at that mm -hmm. or just because they're not really doing their own vetting. So the short version of this is effectively, there was a location that was reportedly a Wagner basing facility, a Wagner basing site that analysts had paid attention to because there was this very sort of visible meet and greet that Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the sort of overall patron of the Wagner group, Russian oligarch, mm -hmm. someone that I would caveat in terms of command and control. He doesn't really have military experience, but he is the person that has donated effectively his is commercial, financial, logistical networks to support the Wagner Group. 
he paid a visit to this site. He's been doing uh, a number of these sort of very visible appearances where he's wearing fatigues, despite yeah. having military experience <laughs> to speak of, and really putting himself forward as the Wagner Group has taken a more prominent role in the invasion of Ukraine. He has, for example, been awarded the, the Hero of Russia medal, which I was immediately skeptical of, but some people on Twitter were like, I think this is really happening. And lo and behold, I think it probably has. Yeah. In those, the, the imagery that was posted by this Russian uh, war correspondent, Russian, honestly, very pro-Kremlin, I think we would probably deem him a propagandist. It's pretty easy to locate where Prigozhin was. And yeah. But when I say pretty easy, I mean, you can read the address in the background in one of the photos. And a couple of days later, this site was, was struck by uh, Ukrainian HIMARS. And as a result, there was a lot of different information about has Prigozhin been killed? how many Wagner fighters died. None of that was really reliable. And I think it was pretty unlikely that Prigozhin, mm -hmm. somebody with no military experience, would continue staying in this place for multiple days. I also think that while their OPSEC is really poor, it's not quite so poor that that image would be posted and then you would keep somebody like a Russian oligarch in that location. Mm -hmm. So it's not possible to say how many Wagner casualties they were, or there were, et cetera. I don't think we can say those numbers reliably. We have what the Wagner folks have said. We have what the Ukrainian military has said survived. I think that's pretty conclusive. He also subsequently went back to that site and took some photos there sort of as proof of life. And he took some of those photos alongside key Wagner Group personnel who actually do have quite substantial military experience and have played an important role in the Wagner Group, including one individual who actually was maimed and lost his arm in Syria and was photographed alongside Vladimir Putin and the Wagner Group's namesake, Dmitry Utkin. Mm -hmm. uh, to further, I think, not only prove he was alive, but cement this connection, not just with being the, the, the guy who's kind of behind the network and holding the money bags, but also mm -hmm. somebody that can lay some claim to the valor of the Wagner group in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I saw those pictures, but I wasn't sure what was real or not. So, <laughs> and I, I think in Ukraine, it's so difficult to tell oh, because yeah. it's, it's going at such a pace and such a speed that it's very easy just to get caught up in, in narratives. And, you know, so I, I, I try to kind of stay back and, and look at more like interesting things that, that I, uh, that I would focus on. Maybe you know something about this or maybe you don't, but this is one of my research interests for years. Zaslo, the Russian equivalent, I think of the CIA's GRS, uh, they provide security and for Russian SVR operatives and make sure that no Russian secrets get behind. So have you ever heard about them? What is your views? So in those cases, and again, sort of similar to this, I'd say that I tend to, in the case of every problems that we look at, but particularly on Ukraine, I will always be upfront about what I know and what I don't know. Uh -huh. uh, and similarly, like talking about things like some of the great work that's done by folks like uh, Nathan Rooster is a great example of this, Rob Lee, about the actual sort of developments on the ground, deriving that from open source information. That is an area where I am totally reliant on their, their great work there just because mm -hmm. I don't have the context that they do and I'm not spending the same amount of time looking at that information and making sense of it. Similarly, when it comes to like Russian security services, that's something that we've focused on less just because of the network aspects. Now, if they're making use of commercial networks, that's definitely something that we'll zoom in on um, and we'll want to understand. But that's part of the reason that for like, if you look at what we've done on Russia, it's really been focused on in the case of looking at things like FSO. So like basically 
Russia's service that provides security for folks like Putin, VIPs. We've really looked at how they have used, you know, GNSS and GPS spoofing. In the case of looking at the Russian military, we mainly focused on how they've used commercial enterprises to illicitly procure defense technology, et cetera. So this is definitely an area where I would say, on like these guys specifically, I could tell you less. If they All had right. a commercial connection, I would definitely be able to tell you. <laughs> All right, no worries. Venezuela. Mm. I think there is a lot of connections there. Oh, yeah. What is the state of the art? So, in your opinion, as long as, what do you know at least? Yeah. So we have done Venezuela work for several years. And I have not been a part of that, but I've basically seen what we've done and seen how we've pioneered that um, and really what our approaches are there. And if you look at our work on that, it's really focused a lot on sanctions evasion, particularly the areas where Venezuela has become pretty adept and a lot of these transnational connections as well. And in these cases, we've really benefited from being able to use vessel tracking to understand how Venezuela is able to import and export commodities, despite sanctions by mapping the, the vessels involved, their activity, the corporate networks behind them. And that's something where I'd really highlight tradecraft that we developed in one area is so applicable to others, right? So mm -hmm. North Korea was really the genesis of so much of our maritime work. And we're now able to leverage that to look at Iran, to look at Venezuela, to look at Syria and Russia in ways that we wouldn't be able to before. So we can rely on the, the outstanding work that those analysts have done and basically port that over to these different problem sets, work with our folks that know those problem sets and see how we need to adapt it. Similarly with vessel, with the, sorry, aviation analysis, air domain analysis, our Icarus flights approach here has been tremendously useful. And that's really where we've been able to do things like set alerts that will show us where aircraft are flying in and out of Caracas and then where they go subsequently. We used that a couple of years back to support some Wall Street Journal reporting where they basically identified one of these, one of the series of sort of very unusual international pariah connections that involve mm -hmm. actors in Turkey, Haftar in Libya. And of course, Venezuela, where we were looking at how commodities were being exported illicitly to basically enrich all these actors that needed to somehow stay outside of the bounds of the illicit financial system. Mm -hmm. In the United States strategy for Africa 2022, mm -hmm. I don't know if you um, saw it, but what I found very interesting was China and Russia are named as near peer competitors and particularly for this so-called next rush for Africa. But what I found interesting was, and I don't think I've seen it really before, maybe I've not been looking hard enough, was North Korea was mentioned mm, okay. as a actor to, how do I say, to combat or, or to, to watch out what they're doing. Have you guys done any, done any research on that? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, it, a lot of our work in different regions of Africa has often ended up tying into these international actors that are playing a role in local illicit economies. We have looked at North Korean activity on and off in the region or throughout the continent, I should say. There's been some really great work that's been done by folks like the Century to look at what North Korean actors have done, for example, in Central Africa. Generally, we've looked at that in sort of the, the realm of, in the realm of arms trafficking, provision of military aid. And a lot of these illicit networks that aren't necessarily um, involved in tremendous amounts of illicit activity or aren't, aren't effectively handling tremendous sums of money, but which are nonetheless valuable to give North Korea access to the international financial system to basically help North Korea build bridges abroad 
where as a pariah state, they can continue to offer some kind of value to international partners that will then, uh-huh. as the sort of the mutual assistance will, will, will help them in terms of giving them access, giving them bridgeheads into whether it be uh, resource extraction, banking, whatever. We have in those cases focused a lot more on Russia and China uh-huh. and Africa, just scale of their activities a lot larger. Yeah. All three of their countries are really different in terms of their philosophy of engagement with the developing world and how they want to leverage private networks for influence. The Russian model is one that I think is pretty, it, it's very visible. I think it's one that's uh, much more sort of egregious in terms of human rights violations, clear connection with support for military activity, counterinsurgency, really focusing on the sort of armed toothy aspect of those relationships. Mm-hmm. Whereas obviously the, the Chinese engagement there, which is something that I certainly don't pretend to be an expert in, but which has much longer time horizons. If you look at the role of, for example, Chinese private military companies in Africa, it is completely different from what Russian private military companies are doing mm-hmm. on the continent. Yeah. So each of those countries, I think, has a different approach to it. We have focused more on the, those that have larger networks, but North Korea is definitely an interesting one, I would say, principally in terms of U.S. policy towards North Korea, in terms of the fact that as a pariah state, it's, it's, it's hard well, to find a state that's more of a pariah than North Korea. Yeah. Uh, and so much of the international system and so much of international trade and commerce has been cut off from North Korea that China is an important, or sorry, that Africa is an important place to look because that offers these sort of weak links in the system of compliance and, and restrictions that North Korea can exploit. Obviously, China is going to continue to be their largest partner, their most significant partner. But I think that part of this is where else are they exploiting? Because there's a pretty limited range of places that they can engage. And where can we affect change? There might be some more difficult for us to affect parts of that North Korea-China relationship, but it may be more possible for the, the U.S. and its allies to, to work with their partners in Africa in order to uh, dissuade them from engaging with North Korea. Very, very interesting, because I think we don't hear enough. Obviously, there's a reason for that, but we don't hear really enough about North Korea. And one researcher I spoke to said that North Korea kind of flies under the wing of China sometimes by providing people because locals, and I don't mean that in a wrong way, but they cannot tell the difference between the Chinese workers and the North Korean ones. But that I, I found that interesting. At the moment, it's been fascinating listening to what you had to say and the time really flew by. What I wanted to know at the moment or on the horizon, is there, a, is there something that, that you're working on that you're very excited about that you could share? So we've done a lot of work over the last two years on Sudan, and I'm really excited to basically be able to share more of what that team has done into the future. Back earlier this summer, we released our report, Breaking the Bank, that basically outlined the military's control of the Sudanese economy and how that has allowed the military to, to basically hang on to power. This, this effectively cadre of security elites that through control of key industries, and control of state-controlled enterprises, as we call them, because they're not necessarily state-owned, was able to survive, was able to maintain its economic influence, its, its lifeline, its connections abroad, even throughout the transitional period, and then subsequently use that to seize power again. That is an exciting project for me, not least of all, because it's really interesting in terms of the, the, the light that that team has been able to shed on Sudan. Mm-hmm. And because of the partnership that we have there, in terms of working with 
folks in Sudan who are obviously the most committed to this, that really for them, the stakes are the highest. And they've been uh, part of this mission for, for years now, where I'm really happy that we've been able to provide data and support analysis that can help them make their case domestically and internationally for how military economic control and their, the, the, net, the networks behind that and their relationships abroad are a key part of thinking about democratic transition. But I think I'm really excited about that also as a blueprint. When we think about states in transition, when we're talking about things like the future of Ukraine, when we're talking about the future of places like Afghanistan, whether it's transition to a democracy, whether it's democratic backsliding, creating a framework for us to think about illicit networks and the role that they play, and really elevating that to at least be at the same sort of level of elite power politics in terms of yeah. how the international community approaches these places. You can do all of the engagement that you want to do with elite power players to talk to folks either from the sort of disenfranchised military side, the ascendant pro, pro-democracy side. But if the anti-democratic actors in any of these countries retain access to the financial networks that let them sustain themselves and achieve influence, do business internationally, they're not going away either through sort of maintaining these deep state networks that let them continue to exercise influence or through something like what we saw in October of last year in the coup in Sudan, seizing on the resources available to them and the way that they boxed the, the civilians and free enterprise out of the Sudanese economy in order to mm-hmm. effectively receive political control. So I'm really excited by that work. I'm really excited for what we're going to do with it in the future. And of course, our Ukraine and Russia work is something that we've continued to work on um, and really scaled up since February. And I'm really, really looking forward to being able to share more of that publicly as it goes forward in the next few months. Very cool. We had a lot of different type of analysts, government, non-government people, give some advice to, to young people and, and, and young researchers. From your perspective, what advice could you give somebody who wants to get into what you do? And you already mentioned languages. That's a great question. So I've thought about this a lot through like interns that we've had and coaching them and working with them and newer analysts and what I've learned and what's been valuable for me over the last five years. And there's a lot of sort of general thoughts I could share, but to condense these to the ones that I think are the most useful, I would start with evaluating why you're interested in this field and what you want to do with it. And I think that having that mission, having that sort of clarity of purpose is really helpful because there's so many different ways that you could approach analysis, intelligence, whatever. And that will depend on the sort of relationships that you want to build and have and change you want to affect. A big part of that, honestly, is to just, and I would say this is important for the fidelity of, of people's work when they're breaking into this field and generally for their health and well-being. As someone much wiser than me once said, most things happen without you. Don't feel like you have to engage with every problem. And I think that Twitter is such a valuable resource for people breaking into this field, not necessarily for them to, for them to raise their profile. Yes. But more importantly, to start building connections with people that know certain problem sets or have higher context in certain areas to help you fill in the gaps in your knowledge. But it's also, I think it can be really poisonous because it kind of creates this race where so much of what we see in sort of OSINT Twitter, people talking about politics or international security is this sort of race to be the first person to include some kind of satellite imagery or things that they found on Telegram. And like, God knows I've been guilty of that in the past too. But if you're not engaging with a problem that you know really well, it's so likely that you will get something wrong. You will unintentionally share disinformation. And ultimately, 
being part of that scramble, I think, is is really tough and not particularly rewarding and isn't necessarily going to help you build skills. Um, not going to help you build skills to really be useful because that's what we all want to do, right? We want to be useful. What I would recommend people do instead is to really think about what their interests are. And those could be thematic. It could Maybe you're really interested in forced labor. It could be regional. You know, I've done a lot of work on, let's say, specifically Latin American security or Latin American illicit mining. I'm really interested mm -hmm. in environmental degradation. It could be technology-based or sort of like looking at a specific data feed. I am, this is clearly my bias. I'm super interested in aircraft and the aviation. Mm -hmm. Based on that, I would recommend that people starting to break into this field and establish themselves, start to develop the skills that they can use to demonstrate a unique value add. You are going to have a really hard time developing transferable, sustainable skills at just looking at everything all the time. Yeah, It's much better to say, this is really what I am going to focus on for the next three, six, nine months. And I'm going to learn what there is to know. And I'm going to start to develop not just knowledge, but skills that let me look at this in a way that other people can't. And then I'm going to use that to start engaging with other problem sets and with other people in the field. That's really what's been most rewarding to me. Like I, people talk to me a lot about Wagner because that's most of the public stuff that I talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, my team does so much other stuff that is in many ways, I think much cooler and more impactful than my work on Wagner. But I talk about that because it is something that I know and I've looked at for a long time. And I can use that to engage with people who have more knowledge of the countries that they're active in or other sort of phenomenon that overlaps with that. People that know Ukraine better than I do. I Sure, I lived in Ukraine for nine months, but I, I don't speak fluent Ukrainian. I don't know the, the, the sort of ins and outs of this conflict in as much detail as many analysts do. But I can say, hey, you know, I really know a lot about the, the networks behind Russian private military companies. I want to talk about what I understand there. And I want to hear, based on your understanding of the conflict, what that means. Mm -hmm. And through that, you can share that knowledge and, you know, you can have concrete data and analysis to share that otherwise those people wouldn't have. So focus on developing something that is unique knowledge and skill where you can start to deliver value to people. They will deliver value back to you. I think that that is key. First of all, if you're trying to do this publicly, if you're trying to do it in the private sector to being able to demonstrate that you understand how to approach analysis and investigations. And I think it'll be key if you're looking to do this in the government space, because it will give you the experience, obviously in the specific area that you're focused on, but through that, you're going to learn a lot about how you best learn methodologies, what you're most invested in. And I think ultimately about research and project design and about mm. analytic standards. And that is going to really be the bedrock, the foundation that you can build a career off of is, is high fidelity work, people's trust in your analysis and a reputation, either whether it's within your specific small professional community or more broadly through your public work. Perfect. I mean, that's what I was hoping you would say, but I think that was one of the best pieces of advice that we had on the show. So thank you for that. And that was yeah, detailed and, 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 and to the point. So thank you for that. Of course, Jack, I, I really had fun and, and time really flew by. I know I say this guys, because people send me messages that I say this at the same time, but I really <laughs> didn't know it was already in an hour, but I was 15 minutes. I looked and I was like, oh, wow, we're already here. But thank you so much for your time. I really uh, appreciate it. And I, I love your work and I'm one of the, the people that follow your Twitter and, and share and, and, and use it in my reporting and our team does it. 
Likewise, big fan of what y'all are doing and the, the the work that Great Dynamics is putting out and the sort of forward thinking approach that y'all have, not just to the specific problems that you're working on, but to sort of the larger discipline. So I'm really glad that we were able to focus on that today. Yeah. Thanks again for making the time for me here. Your Twitter. I mean, we will add it to the, to the show notes, but where can people find you or engage with your yep. work? So I'm on Twitter at, at Jack underscore M-R-G-L-N, because there's a couple of other Jack Margolins out there, and I'm sure that we all frustrate each other quite a bit. And you can also find the, the work that I've done through C4ADS on their website, specifically my report from 2020, which was Trick of the Trade, and then some of my ongoing work and my team's work under our specific uh, page for our conflict-affected states team. They're the ones that are really doing analysis on the daily basis and finding all the the really cool, exciting stuff, and I think affecting change in the world. So I definitely encourage people to check out their work. Fantastic. Thank you, Jack, again, for coming and sharing your insights and some wisdom. For everybody listening, guys, if you want to know more of what we are doing and you want to uh, find out about the podcast, please go to greatdynamics.com. Follow us on all social media at Great Dynamics, and I will speak to you guys next week. Thank you.